Welcome to In Conversation With, a new mini-series podcast from the Marketing Society. I'm Rachel Letham, Head of Content and Communications, and today I'm in conversation with Alison Stewart-Allen, Marketing Society member and CEO of International Marketing Partners, a consulting firm helping companies successfully internationalise. And this is part two of our three-part Foreign Fail series, where we delve into both the global and the local perspective when it comes to branding. And we've seen over the years that one size does not fit all when going global. Companies often make incorrect assumptions that other markets are just like their home market. This can lead to expensive mistakes. And micromarketing is really important. Myself and Alison have talked ahead of this session. We've already spent 10 minutes discussing the pros and cons, the good, the bad and the ugly. So today we are delving into her cabinet of curiosities. That's why we have filmed this as a video podcast so she can show you some of the evidence too. So she's going to delve into some Examples of successful cross-cultural marketing campaigns first and what made them effective. So welcome back, Alison. Thank you very much, Rachel. Great to be here with you. So what shows the good? What are the good, successful cross-cultural marketing campaigns, maybe the micro-marketing aspects and, and what's made them effective in your mind? Yeah, fantastic. Well, one of the examples I'll show is KitKat. Uh, so we all know KitKat, you know, have a break, have a KitKat. Uh, and um, in terms of their localization, uh, in Japan, they have lots of different variants. Interestingly, they have a wasabi uh, extension, line extension. Uh, yeah, I've seen have... that, but I refuse to try it. <laughs> I know, I'm not so <laughs> sure about that one. Uh, they have a green tea Kit Kat. Uh, and on the back of their packaging, because it's packaged really nicely mm. uh, in, a, in a firm paper box, but there's a little space to write a message. So mm. these are given typically as gifts to friends uh, to congratulate them on exams or passing a driving test or some uh, reason to celebrate. Mm -hmm. uh, the other variant that I picked up when I was in Tokyo is the strawberry Kit Kat. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I didn't get to, I didn't actually try these. I wish uh, I had, but uh, I think these are great examples of a brand that uh, recognizes that only one type of Kit Kat, uh, a global template, isn't necessarily going to work everywhere. Mm. Now, interestingly, uh, and related to that, is Starbucks. Now, uh, when I was on business in Singapore, because whenever I go places, I hunt down these sorts of things that I think, <laughs> oh, that's interesting that, you know, here's a local execution that I don't see in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So in Singapore, uh, in the Starbucks stores, they sell wraps, uh, chicken wraps, uh, vegetarian, halloumi, etc. But what's interesting about these wraps is that in this tiny package is a half of a wrap. Mm. So people don't want the full fat, the full size, uh, large two half wraps. They just want this size. Mm -hmm. So I've never seen that before, but it makes perfect sense because perhaps people don't eat the supersized meals that many people eat in other parts of the world. Yep. Now, speaking of supersize and Starbucks, <laughs> uh, interestingly, in the U.S., we have the Trenta. So Trenta in Italian means 30. So yeah. this is a 30 ounce drink. Uh, I bought this in my local LA store uh, when I was last there. You can see uh, the massive size of this drink. So those who are listening and not watching, can you just fill us in on 
what the equivalent of 30 ounces is. I can. So believe it or not, 30 ounces is a full bottle of wine and a bit more. Now, I, mean, I love coffee, but that is a lot of coffee. <laughs> that is a lot of coffee. Wow. And uh, oddly enough, or maybe not oddly enough, it's bigger than the capacity of the human stomach. So it's quite unbelievable as a supersized drink. Yet, you know, this sells in the US. Uh, however, would this sell everywhere? Hmm. Uh, and actually related to hot drinks, uh, one of the things that's really interesting about uh, local uh, sort of adaptation um, and who deserves some credit for localizing, interestingly, is Volkswagen. So when Volkswagen uh, designed the Beetle uh, back in the 90s uh, for the U.S. market, uh, of course, you know, this is a platform where the Beetle design was going to work everywhere, but you had to design the interiors depending on the preferences of different markets. Mm -hmm. So in testing uh, the new Beetle format and the interior, uh, Volkswagen discovered that a deal breaker for the U.S. market was the cup holder in the car. So if you did not have a cup holder in the car, which they hadn't in yeah. the design, that uh, it wouldn't sell. Uh, and uh, obviously we drink hot and cold drinks on the go while we're driving. We're in our cars a lot, especially the Western part of the U.S. is all mm -hmm. about the car. So Volkswagen invested several million dollars to retool the assembly line to move the manual transmission and the gear shift stick back a few inches to accommodate uh, the cup holder. So it wow. was worth it for them to do that. Mm -hmm. Um you know, you have other adaptations uh, when it comes to marketing cars. Uh, Toyota famously found uh, that the Hispanic community in the United States. So, you know, even within a country, you've got sub markets. Hmm. Uh, and in the U.S., we call this multi-culti marketing. Not sure that I quite love that term. Or micro-marketing within an area. Yeah. Or a culture. Exactly. Yeah. I think micro-marketing is a much better way to describe it. Uh, but what happened with Toyota was that the they appointed a Hispanic marketing agency in L.A. called Orsi. And this agency uh, tested the Toyota ads with a Hispanic lady showing the keys to her newly acquired SUV. She's proudly leaning on uh, the bonnet, showing the keys. Uh, and in test, uh, this print ad, which had been running for a while, uh, the Hispanic uh, target uh, audience said, this is such a sad ad. Uh, we feel really sorry. Well, we wouldn't buy that car. We feel so sorry for this poor woman who she may have a great car, but she's all alone. Where oh. are her friends? Where is her family? Interesting. So a big cultural learning there. So they redid this print ad with lots of friends and family in the ad celebrating with her that she got the car. So it's quite interesting. If you don't appreciate these cultural differences or mm. local market mm. differences, the risk is that you do back to the global template approach that's not going to work everywhere. Yeah, definitely. So a couple other back to the cabinet of curiosity items yes. in my collection. Um, this is a sticker 
that I acquired at the local Carphone warehouse in Victoria many years ago. The store has since disappeared. Uh, but this sticker says, don't bug me. I'm just browsing. Love that. Well, I had to howl because as an American, <laughs> I should have said, please bug me. I'm just browsing. Like, yeah. please talk to me. Tell me more about all the great phones in this store. Yeah. Whereas obviously the UK customer is like, Don't talk to what me. are you doing here? Have we met before? Why are you talking to me? Well, we talked about this ahead of time, didn't we? My experience when I was quite young, going into Gap for the first time uh, in the, the new Gap store in Basingstokes, you know, super new shopping mall. And literally walking through the door, and two people being like, hi, how can I help? And I'm like, I've just walked in. I don't know. I want to look at things. And it was just a very American approach to customer experience. And I was like, whoa, that was just too much for me. So I get the sticker concept, but that is the first time I've I've seen that being applied anywhere. So very yeah. interesting. Yeah, it is inter very interesting. I mean, the whole concept even of greeters, you know, in Walmart, in Target, in American big retail stores, uh, we have a greeter who's there to hand you a trolley uh, and wish you a good day. Have a good day. You know, yeah. I think that's a bit too much uh, <laughs> for, for other parts of the world. Um, so another example uh, is the uh, lollipop from Starburst in Australia. I picked that up when I was there, mm -hmm. uh, which is titled Starburst Sucks uh, <laughs> because in... In Australia, uh, a lollipop is called a suck. Mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, is quite funny in different markets. Uh, what else can I show you briefly? Uh, the Canadian chocolate brand called Shite, uh, which, <laughs> which is only in Canada. Um, I'm not surprised. Uh, well, I guess I'm not surprised really that it isn't outside of Canada because it probably wouldn't really work. The Scandinavian mints, uh, which I picked up in Sweden on business, called Sorbits. <laughs> what else have we got? We've got the American classic, only in America story, of the spray cheese uh, called Easy Cheese from Kraft. Wow. And okay. it has a nozzle on the top to conveniently spray the cheese onto a biscuit. Uh, wow. And it's American cheese, meaning uh, that's the type, like, you know, cheddar or Wesley mm -hmm. Wensleydale. Well, this is American cheese, and this is a really popular item. Now, last but not least, is very culturally insightful for me, a candy bar from the people that make uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the U.S., this product exists called Fast Break. In other words, unlike Kit Kat, have a break, have a Kit Kat. In America, have a break, but it better be fast because <laughs> you need work. to be back at, back to work. Wow. So these are indicative in a lot of ways of cultural adaptation or not, mm -hmm. uh, or sort of helping us realize that we really need to understand and have insights about what localizations might be required. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, Pandora, the jewelry brand is another good example of localizing. Yeah, so I was just gonna say, it's not just about brand names, is it? It's no. also about maybe product mix, the value proposition, the cultural nuances. 
So yeah, give us some some good examples. Yeah, so Pandora, the silver uh, jewelry brand is a good one. So um, I've done quite a lot of work with them. Uh, And one of the things I discovered is that in the different parts of the world, they have charms for the necklaces or the bracelets uh, that are specific to that country and often specific to that city that you can't get anywhere else. Mm. So, you know, if you go, for example, in London, you know, you can buy uh not just a union jack charm but you can buy a bobby's hat you can buy uh, a buckingham palace uh charm and things that are specific to that location Mm -hmm. so i think that's a really good example of localizing same with the uh, estee lauder owned fragrance brand le labo so they have uh, a a a scent for every city for london uh it's a black pepper scent uh, and they have different types for different parts of the world yeah. uh, and different scents that are specific to cities. However, only in September every year can you buy the whole city collection uh, in every store around the world. But if it's not September and you want to buy the Tokyo scent, for example, you would have to go to Tokyo to get it. It's not available outside of Tokyo. So I think that's quite clever in terms of making us want to collect, mm. uh, but also it gives exclusivity to, you know, what's on offer. Yeah. Um, the other uh, interesting uh, story, I guess, is about um, uh, fragrances generally, besides Le Labo. I think um, what's good about, for example, Estee Lauder, who owns Le Labo, uh, if, if if you look at their collection and what they're marketing in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. uh, Japan in particular, uh, you'll notice that the fragrances are all really light florals because heavy ouds or heavy scents um, are really uh, antisocial, mm-hmm. especially if you think about commuting patterns. If you're on a very crowded, you know, underground metro train, mm-hmm. you do not want to be wearing and smelling other people's very heavy fragrances because you're packed in. So they're aware of that and they don't even offer a lot of the uh, fragrances that we can get here uh, in the UK or Mm. in the, in Dubai or other parts of the world. Uh, It is a edited collection for that country. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And then talking about edited collections, the likes of global companies that have, have reached out into local markets. So Zara, QVC, you told me some examples there where it just doesn't quite fit when you come to launching something new. So absolutely. Those with us? Yeah, absolutely. So when Zara opened in London, uh, which I think was in the mid to late nineties, um, well in the UK, but I just know the Regent street store, uh, where they opened, They applied the same merchandising uh, strategy and mix that they use in Spain. Mm -hmm. So uh, lots of size zeros, size two, four, six for women, for example, and eight, 10, 12, 14s, and even 16 sold out super fast, but they, because they didn't have enough. Yeah. Uh, So in Spain, you know, the smaller sizes will sell well uh, because women are shaped differently in Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, if you have done your homework well, you will have known that and you will have adjusted accordingly. So I think it's back to, you know, do your homework, 
and use the insights from the homework to inform what you do when you're in another market. QVC is the same. So QVC is the American uh, retail uh, um, uh, online home online shopping uh, channel. Mm -hmm. uh, quality, value, convenience is where the name QVC came from. Mm -hmm. So some years ago, when QVC first launched in Europe, uh, they sold gold bracelets to uh, women's gold bracelets chain bracelets and the return rate they noticed in Germany of these gold bracelets was incredibly high. I mean, 50, 60% of these bracelets were sent back for a full refund. Mm -hmm. And QVC thought, well, is it the quality? What's the issue? Um, and it wasn't about the quality. It was about the size. Uh, these bracelets were too small. Uh, and again, if QVC had maybe done a little more research about the shopper, uh, they might have found that this is not surprising. So I think one of the things we need to really bear in mind in this, you know, thinking about global, local and uh, adaptation uh, and getting global and local right and balancing them is about how we view different markets. Mm. And we have to adopt the mindset that it's different. It's not wrong. And often we just want to judge it and say, well, they're different. They're obviously wrong. I mean, I get lots of questions from people in the US. Allison, you drive in London. Gosh, how do you, how, what's it like driving on the wrong side of the road? <laughs> and you think, well, it's not the wrong side of the road. It's <laughs> the correct side of the road for the UK. Yeah. So don't judge it. So I think that's really what I would love to leave people thinking about is, Acknowledge the differences, don't judge them as right or wrong, accept those differences and look at the commercial opportunities that are afforded to you because of those. Mm. Yeah. Great, thank you for that, that leaving thought. So next time in our final part, we'll talk about the so what when it comes to foreign fails. So the advice that you have for businesses looking to expand into international markets and how brands can effectively adapt and localize their messaging and products for their international audiences. So thank you very much, Alison. We'll speak Pleasure. again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me, Rachel.